Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. All you've got to do is cook and enjoy. And my listeners can get nine free meals. Can you believe it? Nine free meals when you go to HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats9 and use the promo code GoodSeats9. Yep, nine free meals with HelloFresh for a limited time. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats9 and use the promo code GoodSeats9. Here's our show. In true slapstick fashion, the Chicago Cardinals of the 1950s walked a path laden with banana peels. Footballs were thrown like pies, and there were chases worthy of the Keystone Cops. Like slapstick movie characters, the Cardinals thrived on ridiculous situations that enabled them to display uncommon resourcefulness. From chaos, the Cardinals created high comedy, and it was high comedy created in a low-budget environment. We didn't have very good equipment. The Cardinals at that time, the word class never, never came close to us. Uh, we rode the train to games, train to Cleveland, train to Green Bay, wherever we went. It was just a, uh, it was not the big leagues. During the 1950s, the Chicago Cardinals didn't produce many victories, but their offbeat and exciting style of play produced plenty of thrills and made them one of the most entertaining teams in NFL history. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, they're gone and not forgotten, however, and that's what we're here for, of course. And uh, we welcome you to the proceedings. My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is, of course, Good Seats Still Available. It's our curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. What a, uh, what a quintessential uh, franchise we have for you this week. And it's also one that's uh, an incarnation. We don't uh, just focus on defunct things here on this little show. We we like to focus on things that uh, used to be previously incarnated. And uh, that's this week's uh, focus as we get into the original story of what is today the Arizona Cardinals. They got their start way back when during the founding of this uh, crazy thing called the National Football League. And they were known as the Chicago Cardinals. From 1920, the uh, the earliest days of the uh, the beginnings of the NFL, uh, until their demise, or actually their their shift uh, after the 1959 season, from the great city of Chicago to the equally great city of St. Louis, where they were the St. Louis Football Cardinals in their second iteration, and for a bunch of years, that's for another show before they moved to Phoenix and became the Phoenix and then Arizona Cardinals. But if you consider yourself a Cardinals football fan, you know, I I, I question your sanity uh, as you look at the history of this franchise. One of the oldest and actually I think the oldest consecutively run franchises uh, in all of the National Football League. Chicago Cardinals have uh, Chicago Cardinals. Well, the Cardinals generally, the entire history of the uh, the franchise has been, um, shall we say, uh, bereft. Uh, of much playoff or uh, championship uh, success. As a matter of fact, uh, they've only won a couple of league championships, and that was years and years ago before 
arguably the modern NFL sort of uh, came into into being. Yeah, 1947 and 1948 were really the halcyon years of the team, and that's when they were actually located in Chicago. And that's uh, kind of our focus uh, th- this week uh, with our guest Joe Ziemba, uh, who has uh, arguably written the uh, quintessential uh, tome about the Chicago version of these Cardinals called When Football Was Football, the Chicago Cardinals and the Birth of the NFL. And again, it is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, consecutively run franchises in the league in its history. And um, as you heard in that uh, little setup there, Pat Summerall and a few other uh, players from the Chicago Cardinals days, uh, it, woeful is a, is a good word, uh, comical, slapstick. Uh, these are all words, curious, uh, inventive. You know, these are all sort of uh, adjectives used to describe this team that uh, for many years, actually their entire, uh, most of their run, not the entire run, but just about uh, all of it, uh, was uh, pretty much played in the shadows uh, of the uh, the bigger, the stronger, and obviously the uh, longer term, more successful, uh, although this season we could argue the case, uh, Chicago Bears. And um, the Cardinals certainly uh, had their days against the Bears. Uh, they often won a few battles, uh, cross-town battles, uh, usually late in the season. But, uh, of course, more often than not, lost the uh, the long-term wars uh, when it came to the better record and the, the better attendances and all that kind of stuff, uh, to their neighbors uh, from the north. And um, the Cardinals, though, uh, of Chicago were uh, a very uh, interesting and uh, and fun uh, and, and sometimes uh, quizzical uh, lot. Uh, and we're going to get into some of the little hijinks and uh, the, inter- the interesting intricacies. Frankly, uh, if you really go back even to the, the uh, prior years uh, before the NFL's founding, uh, the Chicago Cardinals were really uh, even more important, I think, than the Bears or, or a lot of other teams, uh, even the ones that started in the NFL, because they were part of the Chicago football scene, the pro football scene uh, in the in the Windy City uh, that uh, preceded the NFL. I remember that uh, you know the the pro football game really wasn't a thing until not even after the NFL got started. It took years to kind of gel. We talked about it in many previous episodes, but there were. You know, much like uh, baseball in the uh, 1870s, 1880s, the rumblings of how a sport professionalized itself from the ranks of amateurs and in particular college football, which is all the rage back in the teens and the 20s and the 30s. took a long time for the NFL to ascend to uh, its uh, dominant professional uh, uh, firmament uh, in the sports landscape. And um, the Cardinals, the Chicago Cardinals, were instrumental and very seminal. Uh, in all of that, we're going to get uh, into all of that, as well as their, uh, shall we say, very curious years in the uh, great city of Chicago with our guest Joe Ziemba and the uh, Chicago Cardinals, the football Cardinals of the, uh, let's see, I don't, 1920 to 1960 or so. And uh, we get to that in just a moment's time. But before we do so, we want to say hello and welcome to uh, one of our longtime sponsors and one of our best, of course. And that's our friends at Streaker Sports. Streakersports.com is the place to go to enjoy just about uh, all of the fun and, and interesting garb that uh, that Streaker Sports has. They fancy themselves as the purveyor of sports culture. And um, once you go to the site at uh, Streakersports.com, you will understand why they say that and, uh, and with authority. Because you'll find shirts, caps, and uh, all kinds of other uh, shorts. They've got a great shorts collection, but all rooted in uh, fun uh, sports culture stuff, and of course, the stuff that we love especially, 
the defunct leagues uh, remembrances. And if you're a fan of the World Hockey Association or the American Basketball Association, uh, the good old North American Soccer League, uh, any of the indoor hockey leagues like uh, like Roller Hockey International, uh, how about indoor lacrosse, the old major indoor lacrosse league, the predecessor to today's National Lacrosse League, and even the USFL and the WFL from the realm of football. These are all leagues that are featured tremendously uh, well and uh, in great garb at streakersports.com. Uh, and you're going to find just an amazing array of shirts and, and other wear that have all these great logos and all these uh, great teams and, and what tremendous holiday gifts these would be. Uh, for the sports fan in your life, especially a sports fan that perhaps uh, grew up maybe watching and rooting for uh, one of these teams that uh, no longer exist, but perhaps in the back uh, waters of their memories. And what better way to bring them to the foreground of their memories by by giving them a shirt uh, crafted with love from our friends at Streaker Sports. Streakersports.com. Make sure you use the promo code, though, when you're doing so for all your holiday shopping. And that promo code is Good Seats. Good seats. Yep, that's the promo code at streakersports.com. So check out any of their great defunct league stuff. But they've got cool, you know, sports culture stuff too. They've got uh, stuff celebrating the Mighty Ducks movie. Or how about Slapshot? You're a fan of Caddyshack. Or how about Onions? The great uh, Billy Raftery and uh, his occasional, you know, scream and screech during uh, college basketball games. And obviously plenty of those to come. Uh, why not celebrate the great Bill Raftery and, and his signature phrase with their onions t-shirt collection? It's awesome. All of the stuff is awesome. And again, it's at streakersports.com and use that promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases for the holidays or otherwise, courtesy of our friends at Streaker Sports. Uh, we thank Streaker Sports, of course, and we thank you too, of course, for listening further as we get into the uh, interesting historical time between 1920 and 1959 or so. This is when the Cardinals and the football played in Chicago. And we're going to talk about it with Joe Ziemba in our conversation we had just a couple of weeks back. Sit back and enjoy. We love going back to some of the essential stories, especially teams that exist today, but uh, were previously incarnated. And, and maybe I can, you know, kind of just sort of start with this. I mean, the Arizona Cardinals, right, are the latest expression of a team that uh, essentially has been the longest consecutive running franchise in NFL history. Let's maybe start with sort of from the from the today going backward. How much would you say, and I think I know the answer to this, how much would you say the current fans of the Arizona Cardinals and the current organization uh, give sort of the proper roots their due? given the origination of this franchise way back when in Chicago? My opinion is that a lot of people perhaps know about the St. Louis version of the team, but very few know about the Chicago originations, which go back to 1899. And that's not surprising. Uh, a lot of people are actually surprised, if I use that term again, to know the team goes that far back. So as for the organization itself, uh, they're aware of the Cardinals. I often see web mentions of the Chicago Cardinals, but not a whole lot of emphasis. I thought perhaps there might be a little more this year with the 100th season of the NFL than I've seen. We do have a, a Facebook site, as I've mentioned, where people still seem intrigued by the history of the Cardinals. And so we try and provide them with some bizarre facts and figures going all the way back to the beginning. 
so there is uh, interest in the team from a history viewpoint, but it's one that perhaps legitimately or not is not really addressed too often anymore. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, and, and it's it's been one of the themes that we've sort of unearthed in our conversations to date is is you know the teams that currently exist that that do have roots or go back, and it's interesting to see how uh, well embraced or in many cases, oftentimes uh, whitewashed or forgotten or just simply ignored because modern day doesn't even have the time or the wherewithal or the uh, the extra work, perhaps, or maybe even some of the skeletons in in, in club histories and all that kind of stuff, because it's all about the future and, and, and the big business now of it. And, you know, frankly, I think it's a shame. And I, I sort of didn't want to sort of put a downer on it to start. But, you know, I think it's important for anybody who's a fan of the Arizona Cardinals or their previous incarnation as the Phoenix Cardinals or hell, even the previous incarnation of that of the St. Louis Cardinals, that this was a very deep and rich history and storied franchise for almost 40 years before they even moved to St. Louis, for God's sakes. And that's saying something. So maybe you can give our audience, those these young whippersnappers out there, a little bit of understanding of maybe maybe the primordial ooze from which even this franchise kind of got going even before 1920 and the NFL kind of started kicking around. Yeah, we do see where the Cardinals will say they're since 1920. And, of course, that's when the first version of the National Football League started. Uh, the American Professional Football Conference, but the team itself goes back to 1899 with the first game being played actually on October 15, 1899 when the team called the Morgan Athletic Association, which we can trace back uh, from today's Arizona Cardinals, uh, played a game on the south side of Chicago and defeated the Shermans. And the Morgans uh, were just a bunch of Sandlot kids. They called, they played prairie football so it was not a firm organization, uh, just a bunch of kids that got together to, to play some football, which was still a new game then. I know in Chicago, the Chicago Public League, which was probably the earliest version of high school football, that didn't start till the 1890s. So the game had been more prosperous or prevalent in the East and then moved to the Midwest, but still didn't get a lot of great deal of an acceptance at that time. But So we can trace, and the main reason for tracing the team is uh, two brothers called Chris and Pat O'Brien. Chris O'Brien, I think, is the forgotten man of the National Football League. He was one of the founders in 1920, but he was also a 17 or 18-year-old end on that first team for the Morgan Athletic Association in 1899. And his brother Pat was uh, a quarterback or a fullback at the time. The formations were a little different. So we can trace the O'Briens all the way through to when Chris O'Brien was one of the founders of what we know as the NFL and until he sold the team in, in 1929. And, of course, the Cardinals have been with the Bidwell family since the early 30s. So really only three founders of the team in all those years, or I should say three owners, and that was uh, Chris O'Brien and his corporation and a guy named Dr. David Jones, who had the team for about three years before he sold to Charles Bidwell, whose family still owns the Cardinals today. Well, maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of this, you know, pre-NFL, pre-professional or, 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 or semi or not even professional uh, kind of, uh, I'm going to call it ragtag, but I, I think people need to remember, right? And we've gone way back into the earliest days of baseball, right? Which arguably starts in the 1870s, 1880s or so, and the, the rumblings and, and the relatively crude way that professionalism came into that game. But this, we were still decades away, or at least a few decades away from 
true professional football during the early 1900s. Where and what was this team kind of playing in and, and, and against and whom against in Chicago and environs? Yeah, the different teams were neighborhood teams, and they took their names from the street name in Chicago. So we would say, see teams called the Westerns, the Artesians, the Halsteads. And this would be the neighborhood that took their name of their team from that street. As they got on, there were bigger neighborhood teams uh, called the Kensingtons, the Grand Crossing Eagles, the Logan Squares from the north side. And once in a while, they would go over the state line to play, say, the East Chicago Gophers or a team from Michigan City, Indiana. So uh, for a while there, there was no real formal structure of a league till about 1916 or so when there was something called the Chicagoland Football League, which was a loosely knit organization of some of these prairie teams. But in the early days, it was just neighborhood kids playing each other and what prairie field might be available. There were no stands. The equipment was horrible. Generally, the teams would have, they would play 11 guys. They would go both ways, but maybe only have two substitutes. And if they derived any income at all from these games, it was through bets on the side where a team might get together $10 among the, the whole the players and bet the other team they could beat them. Of course, we're not supposed to talk about betting in football, but that's how they got a little bit of their uh, their revenue way back when. And as the teams got a little bigger, uh, they became part of athletic clubs. And athletic clubs, again, in the early part of the century, were organizations that were to provide their members with entertainment, whether it be boxing matches, track meets, baseball teams, football teams, dances were very popular. And that's when the Morgan Athletic Association from 1899 kind of evolved into the Morgan Athletic Club in 1900. So instead of just having a a bunch of kids playing football for fun, they now represented a club. They probably paid dues to this club. The club, uh, for example, the Morgan Athletic Club uh, had a headquarters and had to pay rent, but drew a lot of revenue not only from membership fees, but from charging admission to their track meets or their football or baseball games. So it became a little more formalized then in the early part of the century as the athletic clubs in Chicago at least started playing each other. Yeah, that's interesting. So even before a, a, a professional circuit per se, right, there was at least a bit of structure around how to play, perhaps maybe even uh, solidifying some of the early and arguably competitive or, or challenging rules uh, differences maybe uh, in, in giving not only kids a chance to play, but also uh, maybe some of the early rubrics of what professionalism might look like in, a, you know, in the decades or two to follow. Yeah, that was true. In fact, one of the key early games occurred, uh, let me get my memory here, about no- the end of November, maybe Thanksgiving of 1904, when the Morgan Athletic Club played a team called the Normal Athletic Club, and they rented out what was called Comiskey's Park, not Comiskey Park, where the White Sox played at 39th and Wentworth. And there was a $150 side bet per team on that. So that was big money. But they charged admission. Uh, so it looked like they were trying to uh, attract not only fans, but also have $150 is a lot of money back then. Uh, so they were taking it quite serious at that time. But uh, around 1904, or yeah, about 1904 is when that game occurred. And we saw more of that where they were getting into bigger venues instead of just playing at any empty lot. They were looking for a place that had bleachers. The Cardinals, uh, as we know them, eventually were playing in a place called Normal Park in Chicago, which is at 
63rd and Racine. That was a baseball field, and they put the football field, so it went east-west. Barely made it within the fence, but it was a more formal structure for them to begin playing in. And and it's important to sort of understand some of this uh, uh, these early origins because uh, uh, the actual name of the team and their color scheme kind of came from from these early pre NFL days. Maybe you can sort of get a little get into the story of of how the team wound up getting its name and its uh, its color scheme, which is uh, still today what it is. Yes, it is. The, the Cardinals have had we think the same colors. Um, this might sound like some heresy, but the name Cardinals did not come from a name of a jersey, which is uh, what our int- research has found out over the last few years. As when the team with the O'Brien brothers morphed from the Morgan Athletic Association to the Morgan Athletic Club, and that was 1899 and 1900. In 1901, the O'Brien brothers were part of a new uh, club called the Cardinal Athletic and Social Club. And it really had nothing to do with the color of their jerseys. The the prevalent story is that Chris O'Brien was the owner of the team, and he bought used jerseys from Amos Alonzo Stagg, the head coach at the University of Chicago. And we haven't been able to verify that at all. In fact, it doesn't make a lot of sense because Stagg hated, just hated the idea of someone playing football after he, he graduated and had nothing to do with these post-collegiate teams. And I've even done some research into his records at the University of Chicago Library and could find no trace of of Stagg selling his used jerseys to a team that was then called the Cardinal Social and Athletic Club. Chris O'Brien was not the owner. He was still just a teenager, basically, or right out of his team. So, uh, again, this was a social club where people belonged and uh, they sponsored the team. However, there was a high school team, which I've done some more research on, called the Morgan Park Military Academy, which was a farm club for the University of Chicago. Stagg would kind of hide some of his uh, promising players there and then bring them over. He helped coach that team. And if you look at their jerseys, they look an awful lot alike, uh, like the University of Chicago uh, jerseys that may have been from a year or two before. And a lot of this is available because we see stuff online or we can research it during in some of these archives where we can actually see the photos from teams and compare what their uniforms look like. So, unfortunately, uh, the name, which we think came from Chris O'Brien buying jerseys from the University of Chicago and saying they look like a Cardinal Red, that's not true. Sorry. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, this is, look, this is, why, this is why we kind of want to delve into these things because – you know, I, I think as, as people sort of recognize that there are histories here, it's also interesting to note that uh, sometimes, and this is why people like you and, and others who, you know, either armchair or or professionally, you know, delve into the history books and, and try to get into the stories, you know, to know that, that you know, the maroon color of the University of Chicago, my, my proud graduate school, isn't necessarily. But it's also, I think it also is pretty telling. You, you mentioned Stag. I mean, it's also, I get the sense from what you just said that, that Stag was a little leery, perhaps, of uh, anything approaching, quote unquote, professionalism in this sport, because it was largely amateur when he was in his prime, right? Exactly. In fact, there's some good stories floating around. I found a couple of them where some of his uh, players, after they graduated, were so fearful of Stag and his influence that they would try and play under oh, I guess, uh, different names, or even trying to disguise themselves. There's one fun story where a 
a red-haired athlete put shoe polish in his hair, and a lot of the guys played without helmets back then. And so thinking no one would recognize him and report him to Stag, even though he was no longer part of the university, everything went along fine until there was a heavy rainstorm during the game and all that shoe polish washed down his face and uncovered his red hair. And, of course, I guess it was reported to Stag. So other players that play under assumed names, uh, and even their stories about uh, let's say I think it was 1899 stag won the national championship. And about 25 years later, they had a reunion of that team and the players then were successful in life, lawyers and jurists and uh, instructors, etc., business owners. They were afraid to have a cocktail in stag's presence because he was against drinking. So uh, the influence there was, was pretty amazing when you think about it and how he influenced them uh, through those years. But, yeah, Stagg was uh, totally against uh, any type of professionalism in football. Well, but there was a thriving uh, circuit in Chicago. You, you hinted at some of it. And, and maybe you can kind of give us a, a sense of how important that uh, pre-NFL uh, you know, Chicago circuit was in helping even form what became uh, the NFL and the Cardinals role in that. Yeah, that's true because the Chicago football league took itself quite seriously. It for the first time had a more formal schedule before the season. It would be published in the newspapers. This is about 1916, 1917 when it was really fully formed, but that's three or four years before the NFL and they would have a playoff system at the end of the season. And I think it was 1918 season ended in, um, I shouldn't say ended, but there were four teams that qualified, and including the Cardinals. But then they were called the Racine Cardinals, not after Racine, Wisconsin, but after Racine Avenue, where Chris O'Brien lived. And they had so many tie games at the end of the season, they had to play the games indoor, what, what might be called uh, the Dexter Pavilion, or we might call it the International Amphitheater in later years on the south side near the stockyards. And so that playoff, uh, they played, the Cardinals played a couple of tie games, and it was interesting because those were probably the first of the professional indoor football games that were played because of this new league and the rules it had in the playoff structure that was implemented. Yeah, now that's fascinating. I've seen some old pictures of that, and uh, it does get dredged up uh, when you talk about uh, some of those bitter cold games or, or building domes and that kind of stuff. And even historians, I think, even get some of that Incorrect, because it predates even the NFL or, or its uh, previous incarnation, the American Professional Football Association, uh, that that pro, if you will, games were being played indoors, which is fascinating to me because I think a lot of people think that's a modern kind of development that it, that it frankly was even it was even pre NFL. That's how that's how integral, you know, the, the beginnings of, of the sport was playing indoors. Pretty interesting. It is. And I'm thinking it's really innovative that these teams got together laid out a football field inside the amphitheater, the pavilion there, and were able to to have a game. I, some accounts say the field was only 80 yards long. Uh, others say that there was uh, rules against uh, the out-of-bounds because it was so close to the walls. But that really has always amazed me that way back then, the season would continue, and it actually ended in January of 1919, that they would have that foresight to go indoors, not only to continue playing and determine a champion, but also attract some paying customers. And it did very well in attracting customers to see those games indoors. Yeah, we had, uh, to spin it in our modern realm, we had uh, 
the original Arena League football founder, Jim Foster, on for a couple of episodes a couple of years back. And it's fascinating because, you know, in many respects, they were kind of trying to create rules as they went along. But uh, again, you, you go back and, and obviously it's a more miniaturized and, and certainly modernized realm. But But frankly, a lot of the essential components of the game, right, are just simply shrunken into a, an indoor kind of a smaller kind of venue, which, which again, you know, another fascinating tidbit that, you know, I don't think today's modern fans sort of uh, recognize. And, and you know, they, they think everything that uh, is new is, uh, you know, completely new. And in many respects, everything old is new again. So g- give me 1920, because that's obviously a crucial year. And I'm just fascinated. And frankly, this is this is relatively new to me. I mean, certainly I'm very aware of the Chicago Cardinals franchise and it's its role in in the foundation, uh, among the others, with uh, f- creating this uh, what became the National Football League. But I am fascinated. What you just described to me is how much Chicago, writ large, as a city and as a metropolitan area, and as a, if you will, a cradle of a bunch of professional teams scrounging around, playing even in a pre-league kind of an environment, was to the foundation of this league. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was the first year of that league, there were four Chicago teams basically in the league. Uh, the Decatur Staley's, who were already playing some games up at Cubs Park before it became Wrigley Field. We had the Cardinals, another team called the Chicago Tigers, and then the Hammond Pros, which had been around for several years in Hammond, which is just across the border. So it's uh, very close to downtown Chicago. And the Hammond team was one that really helped push pro football in the Midwest because the owner uh, put together a great team that included George Hallis, Patty Driscoll, and some of the others who became part of what we now know as the Chicago Bears. And he paid quite a bit of money. He paid $100 a game, which was pretty much unheard of in 1919. In fact, I think they were called the $20,000 football team. That's how much they were going to pay that year in salaries. So it was uh, uh, quite startling to the fans that for the first time, perhaps, they were going to see all these college stars on one team. And the Hammond, of course, crossed the lines and and played teams in Illinois and, and elsewhere. But, yeah, you're right. There was a great, great influence of Chicago in the early part of what we know as the National Football League. Yeah, which is which is also now interesting as I sort of go back to my first question, right? So obviously people know and revere in this city the Bears, of course, and, and the Staley's being the original sort of name. And, you know, the, they became the Bears uh, very shortly thereafter. I think it was two years after, you know, the beginning of the inception of the league, right? And But it's it's interesting, though, how maybe we can sort of get into this as 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 the years sort of roll on and the Bears and the Cardinals wind up being – the only two, if you will, NFL franchises in Chicago, how, I don't know, I want to say forgotten, but uh, almost second-class citizenry uh, accorded to the Cardinals relative to that of the Bears uh, in this city. And then, frankly, uh, in the league as time wore on, and, you know, obviously a couple of relocations didn't help matters, but it's really interesting how how essential the Cardinals were at the beginning of the, of of the league as well as you know their their you know uh, unmatched history in this league and and they're both just as vital uh, to this uh, uh, you know very vibrant Chicago football scene in the early days here. 
I'm just interested to sort of see how the Cardinals kind of, I don't want to say lost their way, but got a little less love, I guess, or less recognition maybe than the Bears. And maybe it's because the Bears just stuck around forever here. Yeah, the Bears being around. But one of the, the early things that set the Bears apart was when George Hallis was able to, I guess, build a team that was already there in Decatur he worked into the contract that the players would be employees of the, of the Staley manufacturing. So they got paid per game, but they were also paid to work every day. And he was also able to get them paid while they practice after work. So it was kind of nice to have a team at that time that was so organized and so well-funded that they could not only attract people because football didn't pay for you to do it just once or during the season and have a decent living the rest of the year, they all had to have part-time jobs, which of course continued probably into the forties and fifties for the NFL. But here, Hallis was able to not only attract players, make sure they had a full-time job, got a little bit extra for playing football and uh, got paid and to let them take off work to practice, which I think was the undoing of uh, the Decatur sponsorship, Decatur sponsorship after a year or so ago. But that seemed to allow Hellas to, from the start, have a winning team. In the second year of the league, the Staley's won it. And they were able to, to put together those great teams in the 20s and 30s and 40s, uh, in the 40s with Sid Luckman, to where they were getting the fan appreciation. And their game uh, games were played, uh, of course, at Wrigley Field, which is more centrally located for folks in the city of Chicago, where the Cardinals were on the south side. You could access uh, Normal Park by train and bus, of course, um, and even when they're in Comiskey Park. Uh, but it, was, it seemed like easier for the fans, and for some reason, the media, as it was at the time, there were several papers in Chicago. Hallis was a great promoter, of course. Uh, he would often, in the early days, write the game story and hand deliver it and see that it was printed the next day. So he was very savvy in terms of getting promotion for the team, and then in terms of getting uh, people to attend. And back then, we didn't have cable television or multimedia advertising. You had attendance and program sales. And that was about it for bringing income in for the team. So I think probably Hallis jumping in, uh, getting that prime real estate of Wrigley Field and a very favorable rent structure with uh, Mr. Wrigley that enabled him to have a team that was uh, good. He was able to track good players, pay them, uh, and then put up winning records. And so that was attractive to local fans in the area. And that just seemed to be the basis of why the Bears were a little bit more recognized and have been throughout the years than the Cardinals, which weren't quite as successful in win-loss nor in attendance throughout the years. Well, so how did the Cardinals establish their fan base then? So uh, you're obviously mentioning one component of it, sort of the north side versus south side kind of thing. But and, and it's sort of the full-time employment thing, which is uh, striking because it sounds a lot like some of the earliest days of pro basketball that we've we've gone into in the earliest days of the NBL and the uh, things of the pre-NBA where you know, there were company teams to start with. And it was it was company first and team play at night. And then obviously that begat a, a pro circuit over time. But how, how did the Cardinals distinguish themselves as a viable uh, professional franchise in addition to the Bears and I guess for one year even – in addition to the Chicago Tigers in, in the city to get right. fan yeah. attention. Yeah, they, they promoted locally. Chris O'Brien was pretty innovative as well. 
he was one of the first to uh, recognize the value of future generations of fans. So he would have special uh, either free days or half price days for schoolboys to attend. Uh, he recognized veterans from World War One. He established parking lots near Normal Park so fans could take these newfangled automobiles and drive to the game. And he also tried to get, as best he could, uh, coverage in the media. You know, Brian also would be kind of like a salesman. He would, if they say the Cardinals played down in Moline or over in Rock Island, he would go there the week before and try and drum up business from the local fans. Of course, the writing in that time was extraordinary. We'd hear about the giant Chicago Cardinals coming to Moline, you know, with several All-Americans on the team. And poor little Moline doesn't have a chance. But they would build up these uh, versions and stories of the All-Americans. When it came to Chicago, the Cardinals just didn't seem to draw a lot. Normal Park on the south side didn't have a, a large seating capacity. Even when they moved to Comiskey Park, they didn't have much luck in filling that place. Uh, again, winning helps a lot. The Cardinals won the championship in 1925, but that unfortunately was the same time Red Grange came in the league. And so the Bears were off filling stadiums around the country and the poor Cardinals were trying to get a couple thousand to watch them play at Comiskey Park. So that was uh, kind of interesting about how the Cardinals did try and survive. In the 30s, this was after O'Brien sold the team, they actually played their games from 1931 to 1939 at Wrigley Field which left the Cardinals at kind of the bottom of the ladder in terms of, of preferred game days. The Cubs, of course, if they had a, a good season, might be playing late into October. Uh, the Bears would have their first choice because that was their home field. And so then the Cardinals at Wrigley Field would have maybe their opening home game in November. Uh, I think Vince Bononis, uh, a great, I think his all-league guard for the Cardinals, once said the team tried to move to Wrigley Field where they had all the rich people. And we had the, what do you call them, the, the have-nots on the south side. Probably not fair for us to describe it that way, but it seemed to be true because the, the fans of the Cardinals would not go north to watch the Cardinals play in Wrigley Field. And, of course, the Bears wanted fans wanted nothing to do with seeing another team playing in Wrigley Field. So that did not last, and the Cardinals moved back for 1940 into Comiskey Park. So lots to unpack there. So so on that on that one, that that was the Bidwell family when they bought the team in, in thirty three that, that they decided that they were going to try to kind of go up market, if you will, and find out where the where the money was. But that's that's odd because the city of it's such a large geography, and I guess it, hindsight is twenty twenty now, right? But you know to to be the third tenant in you know in or arguably a baseball park, right? And the number two football team, let alone. You know, uh, not have it with, with another stadium just on the south side, just basically sitting waiting for a, a winter tenant. Sure. Yeah. And they, um, it, it just never worked for them. I, I guess it was an idea. And actually, they started a, a year before Bidwell got involved and uh, he kept up with it. But the owner, Dr. David Jones, he was the city physician for the city of uh, Chicago. He had promised that he would bring a winning team to the south side and made a lot of changes. One of the biggest was bringing Ernie Nevers, the Hall of Famer, in to play for the Cardinals and later coach for the Cardinals. He had the first out-of-town training camp in Coldwater, Michigan, and really pumped up the team. But um, when attendance was still not very strong, uh, he was the one who had the first season up in Wrigley Field. I'm not sure if they signed a contract for several years, but 
Uh, Bidwell certainly had the opportunity to move the team back, but but kept them up north. And maybe it's because he had a fondness for the Bears, kind of working for Hallis at one time, being a partner with Hallis and a pro basketball team, the Chicago Bruins. Uh, of course, this was going on before and during his uh, time as owner of the Cardinals. But who knows? Uh, but the attendance-wise, it certainly didn't work. All right. So before we move on to the the ownership changes, and you mentioned it's in, it's important that we go over sort of how it got to the Bidwell family because it didn't go directly to them, as you just mentioned. 1925 is an asterisk for sure in NFL football history, right? And and I believe, if I'm not yes. mistaken, the Cardinals, I guess, almost retroactively claim 1925 as their first ever NFL championship. But it wasn't kind of that simple, nor maybe even at the time acknowledged as such as a championship team. Was it? Yes. 25 was perhaps the, if not today, it still is one of the most controversial seasons that was ever played in the NFL. In 1924, there was a a similar thing where a couple of teams claimed the title and the owners and their minutes, which are available to Pro Football Hall of Fame, put down certain rules. And the rules claim that you could schedule any number of games you wanted to until a certain date. Let's just say December 1st or December 7th. And if you wanted to, you could keep playing games. Uh, the Cardinals in 1925 were neck and neck with the Pottsville Maroons from Pennsylvania and had what uh, a lot of the newspapers called the championship game uh, between the two teams at the end of the season. And Pottsville won that game. So they edged ahead of the Cardinals in the standings. And this is the same time now that we're hearing rumblings about Red Grange joining the Bears and coming to the, the NFL. So uh, some trains of thought are saying perhaps the Cardinals or the Maroons were trying to finagle a game with Red Grange and post them and, and get a full crowd. Uh, there's some correspondence that indicates that. But basically, Chris O'Brien, the owner of the Cardinals, he really wanted to win the championship. So, which was legal, he scheduled two more games in 1925 before the deadline. One was against uh, a Hammond team and one was against the Milwaukee Badgers. He won both games. So that's the first part of the story. That edged the Cardinals ahead of Pottsville by a game or so. At the same time, Pottsville wanted to play a bunch of all-stars from Notre Dame up in the Philadelphia area. And here's where a lot it gets a little more controversial is that the league supposedly told Pottsville they could not play uh, in Philadelphia because of territorial territorial rights, but they went ahead and played the game anyway. And uh, were then summarily. This is because they were trying to make some, the the part of the the early part of the NFL, this was also part of sort of revenue generation, right? There was like exhibitions in and around the quote unquote regular season, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So they uh, would have been okay to play this game anywhere else, but uh, they decided to play it where they were told not to. So that's the controversy that that uh, followers of Pottsville will claim that they should have won the championship, they shouldn't have been kicked out of the league, and that the Cardinals scheduled these two games illegally. But it was legal. Ethical? I'm not so sure. Um, but the Cardinals then, because Pottsville was kicked out, were – uh, the league said was awarded the championship to the Cardinals, and they never claimed it. There was no trophy at the time. And then the story got even a little crazier because when they played, the Cardinals played the team from uh, Milwaukee. Milwaukee came to town. They didn't have enough players. So one of the Cardinals players found some additional professionals 
who turned out to be four high school kids from Englewood High School. So the Cardinals then were uh, brought to the carpet. Chris O'Brien was fined. And uh, again, what was said at that time, uh, would the Cardinals have to give up the championship? But they never, they never were, I should say, the championship never was taken away from the Cardinals. So uh, they're still recognizing the 25 champions, even though maybe outwardly they never accepted that until later on when the, the Bidwell family became involved. So if you're from Pottsville, you probably have a good claim that something must have been amiss. If you're a Cardinals fan, you probably, and rightly so, say, hey, we just schedule another couple of games. Either way, it's very controversial. And it's funny, even to this day, there's still, you bring that up among people who do research, and there's a, a good argument going on uh, as to who is actually a 1925 champion. But Chris O'Brien was certainly looking forward to uh, winning the championship and uh, perhaps scheduling a game or two with the Chicago Bears again. Well, okay, so I guess it's important, right? Because um, you mentioned and hinted at that uh, the team was uh, that O'Brien sold the team to to Dr. David Jones in 1929, a very interesting year on a writ large basis in this country and frankly the globe. Then yes. by 32 was then purchased by. A gentleman by the name of Charles Charles Bidwell, who we'll probably want to get into because the Bidwell family from this point on obviously becomes synonymous with uh, the Cardinals franchise for the rest of its of its life and and still. But I, it's interesting that it, based on what I've read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it was only after Bidwell became owner of the team that this sort of 1925 asterisk championship became uh, an issue and or a pursuit of his to somehow at least lay claim to as their history went on. Yes. And and I think that's accurate. Um, the history of it is a little fuzzy as to when and if, and why the Cardinals claimed the championship that the league basically gave to them in early 1926. I shouldn't say gave, but recognized the Cardinals because they had the better record under the rules at the time. And, of course, today we can't go back and change that type of history, or this, we can question the decisions, but we can't go back and change it. But it does seem around that time that you would see the Cardinals claiming that they were champions in 1925 and some of the programs and other material that went out with the team. All right, what's this? Hello Fresh. Hello Fresh. Yes, America's number one meal kit, of course. Get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door with Hello Fresh. All you have to do is cook and enjoy. Exactly what I've been doing the last couple of days as we've been enjoying in the Hanlon household some delicious Hello Fresh meals. Not only delicious, but simple and straightforward and easy to make. Hello Fresh makes cooking delicious meals at home of course, a reality, regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. From step-by-step -step recipes and pre-measured ingredients, you'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. Say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and takeout food. HelloFresh has you covered. Break out of your dinner rut with HelloFresh's over 20 seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. There's something for everyone, from family recipes to calorie-smart and vegetarian and fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers. HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you know you'll always get something delicious. And it's also flexible and fits your lifestyle. Add extra meals to your weekly order, uh, perhaps even adding on yummy uh, uh, additions like garlic bread or even cookie dough. 
You can easily change your delivery days or your food preferences. Heck, you can even skip a week whenever you need. HelloFresh has got you covered. We love it. Give it a try. I guarantee you're going you're gonna to enjoy it. And here's a great incentive to do so. How about nine free meals? Yes, I said nine free meals when you use the uh, promo code GOODSEATS9 at HelloFresh.com slash GOODSEATS9. That's HelloFresh.com slash GOODSEATS9, the number nine. And make sure you use the uh, promo code GOODSEATS9, and you're going to get nine free meals, courtesy of us and HelloFresh. It's a great deal. And may I suggest when you're choosing those first nine meals, that two of them be the sesame beef tacos with quick pickled veggies and chili sour cream, uh, which we just had last night in the Hamlin household. We loved it tremendously. And then two nights before that, we uh, also had a, a tremendous meal. Uh, the chicken sausage and spinach ricotta ravioli with tomato and lemon. That was thumbs up, too, from the Handling Clan. So that's just two of the nine we could have chosen, but go for it. Nine free meals when you go to HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats9. Again, HelloFresh.com slash GoodSeats and the number nine. And use that promo code, too, when you're on the site, GoodSeats9, and get nine free meals. Again, from our friends at HelloFresh. We love the food and we love our friends at HelloFresh and you will too. And uh, while you uh, search up that deal and get your uh, your web browser and your order in there, how about a uh, return to our conversation? I also get the sense that uh, the Cardinals uh, also, before uh, even Bidwell became owner, were a little ahead of the curve when it came to uh, integrating African-American players into their into their mix. Is that right? Oh, it certainly is. And uh, it was a shameful part of the NFL when there was no integration there for most of the 30s. But the Cardinals had a, a fantastic player named uh, Frederick uh, Slater, Duke Slater, All-American at the University of Iowa, originally grew up on the south side of Chicago. His father was a minister, and he was just a – dominating player. He played basically his entire career without a helmet. He didn't see much use for him. So, but Slater uh, is this year of the National Football League Hall of Fame. I shouldn't say the National Football League, but the Pro Football Hall of Fame is going to try and recognize some of those folks who played in the early years, um, hopefully include them in the Hall of Fame. And I, Duke Slater is one that absolutely should be considered, but uh, he was an African-American player, played several years for the Cardinals, started out with, I believe, Rock Island before he joined the Cardinals and was a dominating tackle. And in fact, one of the oldest NFL records was established in Thanksgiving Day 1929 when Ernie Nevers of the Cardinals scored all 40 points for the Cards in a 40-6 to win over the Bears. And uh, to this day, that's the most points ever scored by an individual in an NFL game. And Duke Slater was uh, the primary reason for that, that most of the running plays ran right behind him at tackle. And Slater was uh, always known for one who would clear the hole for the runners. But, uh, yes, the Cardinals had Duke Slater, um, another great halfback called Joe Lilliard in the early 30s, who was a phenomenal runner, uh, receiver as well, and passing wasn't as prevalent as it is today, but uh, another great player. And then those players just disappeared until the 40s. So in some respects, it, it, I, and I and I, you you may know the history uh, more uh, deeply, certainly, than I do, but, but people like Duke Slater, right, seem to be almost uh, forgotten in terms of their 
how, uh, you know, uh, pioneering they were. I mean, he, he was arguably one of the, if not the, standout African-American players in, in the early days of pro football, even just slightly before the NFL. I yeah. wonder why more hasn't been made of sort of these pioneering efforts, especially in light of maybe where the NFL still hasn't sort of, you know, uh, kind of crossed the chasm on on uh, on integration and, 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 and rights and all that kind of stuff, if you believe some of the current players out there, they, you know, there's a lot of disrespect still, I think, in the community. Yeah, and the thing with Duke Slater, such a phenomenal two-way player for so many years. Every time you read an article, it talks about him and what he did in the line. And it just, uh, he's one that should be recognized. But I agree, yes, yeah, some of these players, and is it, a, is it because the writers who covered them are no longer with us and none of us ever saw them play? And so we really have to do rely on research to bring these folks back. And that's, I guess part of the thing that I enjoy about the Cardinals and their players is finding something that no one perhaps has seen before and to uh, you know, publish it however, however possible, whether it be in book form or on our, our different sites. But yeah, there just doesn't seem to be the recognition. Even when you see the seniors who are nominated each year, they're generally the seniors perhaps from the 50s or 60s for the Hall of Fame and not those from the 20s and 30s. Well, okay, so let me let me ask this indelicate question then. So you're hinting at maybe one of the reasons why perhaps. And and yeah, I, I, this is also part of why we kind of, in our own very amateurish way, kind of go into this conversa- these conversations because there are things that, you know, are either lost to history or have not been sort of fully vetted or – you know, that, that are living and breathing issues that could be resurrected and, and maybe brought to light such as this. I, and I'm not I'm sort of making a, a crusade out of this, but, you know, it seems like it's a, it's a fairly decent injustice. Could it be also, right, besides the fact that the early, you know, the 20s and some of it was prior to the NFL's formation and, and the rules you're talking about were relatively free form, shall we say, I'll be charitable. Do you yeah. think it would have been any different had Slater been, let's say, on the Chicago Bears, right? Because the the Cardinals, as we'll get into in a few minutes, you know, kind of were wayward in terms of their on-field performance for decades, right? Uh, during and after Bitwell's uh, acquisition of the team. And so I guess I'm just wondering if the Cardinals' relatively unremarkable performance in the years that followed in the 30s and the 40s might have had something to do with the fact that Snyder wasn't given any uh, additional credit because he was on a relatively moribund team. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. But if he had been on the Bears with winning championships in the 30s and 40s, not they would have been playing the 40s, but yeah, maybe it would have been a little different because after 25, the Cardinals were not really competitive in a lot of those years. And so there was no recognition for the team nor for the individual players. You know, we have Ernie Nevers, obviously, he's in the Hall of Fame. And in the 40s, you have Charlie Trippy, but in between there, yeah, there's a little bit of a gap, and that's uh, a good, interesting that uh, perhaps the one loss record of the team might have a lot to do with it in terms of recognition for some of these players. All right, well, tell me about Charles Bidwell because I, I don't want us to start to pin some blame uh, on the team's performance, but he did inherit the team. He did purchase it in 1932. Maybe a little background on who Charles Bidwell uh, was and uh, and arguably sort of his approach to running the uh, other team in Chicago in the NFL uh, during the 30s and 40s. 
Bidwell was a, a businessman who was involved in printing programs, some say involved in printing tickets for other types of uh, social entertainment. But again, he was an innovator. He was involved with dog racing. He was involved in women's softball, a pioneer there, and had a team in Chicago, had his own stadium called Bidwell Stadium on the south side where the softball team played. And as I mentioned earlier, he was partnered with George Hallis and a pro basketball team. At the time he purchased the Cardinals, he had to relinquish his share of the Bears and one of the interesting stories of that era is when George Hallis bought out Dutch Sternum and his partner in the Bears, and they were together from 1920-21 all the way through 1932, he had to meet a certain deadline. And in order to get that cash, he had to borrow. He borrowed from, say, George Trafton, you know, another Hall of Fame player. He had to borrow from George Trafton's mother. And at the last minute, Charles Bidwell gave him, I believe, $5,000 so Hallis could make that final payment. But in order to become owner of the Cardinals, Bidwell had to relinquish whatever shares in the Bears he had or any position. Uh, He was a a secretary and some places described uh, other officer positions. And it was interesting. One of the stories that we hear about Bidwell is his loyalty to Hallis and the Bears because of their business partnerships. But when he first became owner of the Cardinals, the Cardinals and the Bears played a game and Bidwell forgetting that he was the owner was watching as the Cardinals led the bears up until late in the game when the bears scored to win and Bidwell was overheard to say, whoo, that was close. Meaning close for the bears win and forgetting he was the owner of the Cardinals, but that changed. He became very, very determined to build a winner. It took a while. Uh, in fact, when he signed Charlie Trippy in the forties, that was the first bonus baby of the NFL Trippy got this huge contract still when guys were getting maybe $110 a game and uh, Trippy signed for about $100,000 for two years. He could have played uh, pro baseball. He could have gone to a new professional league that was starting with a team in New York that Mr. Bidwell had uh, talked Charlie Trippy into playing for the Cardinals and it paid off because the Cardinals then won the championship in 1947 with Trippy being one of the leaders. Unfortunately, Mr. Bidwell passed away earlier in 1947 and never saw that championship occur. But uh, he had been active for many years in different sports activities in in the city of Chicago and surrounding areas. And so uh, as a businessman, I don't know if he was as tight as, say, George Hallis was rumored to be, uh, but perhaps they needed more of a, a, a football person perhaps to attract better players for the Cardinals in the 30s. Of course, in the 40s, then the war broke out. All the teams uh, lost their players to the service, that they were over 630, I believe, NFL players uh, were in the military during World War II. So uh, it, it was tough to, to I guess, climb that mountain to develop a, a championship team in the NFL, but Bidwell eventually did that in 1947. Okay, I want to I want to get to the 1944 season in a minute because it's it's a, a huge asterisk in in the history of of, of the oh, game. Yeah. But I I want to go back though before we do that into the remarkably unremarkable 1930s and early 1940s of this franchise. Right? What was it about this team under Bidwell's management that just made it so? Uh, I mean, they only I I I take it they only had what two winning seasons during that period of time. And and, yeah. and losing seasons for like I think ten consecutive 
10 consecutive from 36 to 45. What was it about this franchise during that period of time? Was it the ownership? Was it mismanagement? Was it bum luck? Was it, what was it, do you think, that that they were so unremarkable? Probably hard to pinpoint. One thing might have been an amazing array of coaches. They seem to change coaches almost every year throughout the 30s. Uh, might be one reason Ernie never started the decade. He lasted a, a year. Then uh, another guy named Roy Andrews got involved. Then Jack Chavegny, uh, Paul Schistler, just a, a mild Milan Creighton was another one. All these folks were coaching in the 30s, and maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, the other part might have, I guess, been the talent itself that was on the field. They didn't have a real superstar back then. Uh, I'm reminded of a guy named Gus Tinsley who came in the league in the late 30s. Uh, he was a, an end and had a spectacular performance, great statistics, and just kind of walked away from football after a couple of years. And again, he had other interests or perhaps could make more money than uh, playing pro football by doing something else. But they tried a lot of different things again then too. For example, the Cardinals were um, went on road trips and postseason tours in 1934 after the season. Uh, they went out to California and played several games out there and uh, played teams along the way in Kansas City and Tulsa. And they actually played 22 games that year, which is and, and crazy. So they had a 16 and six record overall, but five and six in the NFL. So you can see the level was extraordinary out of the league, but inside the league, uh, they were just average. And except for 35, when they were eight and four and, and uh, overall and six and four in the league they as you mentioned had a tough time being competitive in the national football league in the 30s so generally you look at that you look at the coaches uh the great turnover but also the players they just didn't seem to have any real big standouts or ones that they could attract and keep that's even for example when the draft started um the first draft pick, Jay Berwanger from the University of Chicago, wasn't drafted by the Cardinals, but eventually became property of the Bears, and he could not agree with Hallis on a on a contract, and so he never did play pro football. So there were some there that uh, either just decided not to play pro football or maybe didn't pan out after great collegiate careers. Uh, not quite sure, but I think the carousel of coaches had something to do with it in the 1930s because in the 40s we had jimmy councilman who started out the 40s and then finished the 40s and gave the cardinals their last great success as a team before we talk on that i want to talk about 1944 um we had uh we've had a, a bunch of conversations around sort of how world world war ii nearly sank this national football league but but arguably galvanized yeah. it uh and we had a really good conversation back when we first got this show up and running uh, with our pal Matt uh, Algio, who uh, uh, kind of walked us through the 1943 season of the Steagles, the sort of combo team there. Oh, yeah. yeah. But but maybe you can give us a sense of how the Cardinals held on uh, in their own mashup way with Pittsburgh uh, in 1944. Maybe you can scene set that because, look, it, you could you could look you could be guilty, as I am, of looking backward. Right. Not there at the time. And as an armchair amateur historian here, you could look back and go, well, if there's any team in the short history of the NFL that that might be predicted not to make it through a crisis like World War II, you could have imagined the Cardinals being perhaps that franchise. But that's not what happened. Yeah, yeah. So what happened in 44? Well, 44, when it became 
obviously that so many players were in the military. The Bears and the Cardinals first proposed the league. This is after the Steagles. They proposed that they make one Chicago team. It seemed like it would be beneficial to both teams. The North and the South side would be united, and Chicago would have one pretty good team. And that's, I guess, how the other NFL owners felt, too. They decided that that would be too strong a team and voted it down. So the Bears kept going on their own, whereas the Cardinals, as you mentioned, uh, merged with the Steelers. I know as Mr. Rooney, the owner of the Steelers, then called it the worst team ever in the history of the National Football League. They uh, lost all their games. Uh, I think they're 0-10. And uh, they were nicknamed the Carpets, Carpits, the Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Steelers, which the Chicago Tribune uh, eventually evolved the Carpits into the Carpets. And why not? Because every team walked all over them, just like a carpet. And so that was uh, the result of the team. But it did keep both of those those teams alive. They're still with us today. And I think it was instrumental in preserving the league as well as preserving the Chicago Cardinals franchise. But, you know, there were some good games. Uh, the Cardinals, I think, drew over – Car Pitts drew over 40,000 in New York for a game with the Giants. They had uh, 35,000 in Washington for a game with the Redskins. Back home, it wasn't very good. Uh, game with Cleveland, uh, home game only due 3,500. So they were definitely drawing better in the uh, area in the East Coast than they were when they had the home games, which pretty much all took place uh, at the end of the season. They had three or four games in a row that were played in Chicago. Uh, in fact, one game that was a home game with the Bears was uh, in, in Pittsburgh. So um, they lost that one as well. So they, the Card Pitts played the Bears in Pittsburgh and lost uh, 49-7. to 7. That Only about 9,000 people showed up for that one. I'm sure actually not as many people would actually admit that they actually went to that game, I guess. So one gets the opinion uh, that, you know, it, it almost feels to me, and you mentioned Bidwell's relationship, obviously, with the Bears years prior before getting this franchise. It almost feels, in some respects, that the NFL almost kind of collectively needed this team to at least survive, certainly if it wasn't going to compete for championships or or be hugely competitive or whatever. But it almost felt like it, uh, it this, that this franchise was uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, crucial to sort of at least be in the loop so that uh, the league can sort of continue on with, with as many franchises as it had. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Because if it does feel like this team, you know, from the league perspective was, and we'll get into the, the 50s in a minute, uh, but I don't want to bypass 1947, which we'll get to. But it does feel like it, it, it was almost expected that this team was just going to be hanging around. It wasn't a bad thing for them to be hanging around, but maybe not much more. Yeah, and I think even earlier, uh, Bidwell was perhaps looking – now, here we go. Am I, am I going to say that they wanted Bidwell in the league or they wanted the Cardinals? Because I know even back in the late 30s, especially in 1940, they played a exhibition game or a game in Buffalo where the team was supposedly looking for a, a different location if they were ever going to move. Again, we didn't have TV contracts, so uh, if they wanted to move, they could certainly move. But it just seems like um, the Cardinals always seem to find a way to survive another season. And that started occurring uh, after the war, of course, when they had the little better teams and attendance really did start picking up for them, even in, at home in Comiskey Park. But uh, I'm wondering if how serious Bidwell was 
when he started looking around and playing some home games in different areas, and Buffalo was one. And, uh, if he was really content to stay in Chicago, to me, I think he was. I think he was just looking for a way of maybe having a game or so elsewhere to pick up the gate because he had all his business interests and his family was in Chicago, of course. So uh, the league itself seemed to be comfortable with having two teams in Chicago when there were no other cities with, with two teams in it. And also it, it seemed to help to, with the Bears and the Cardinals when they played, cutting down on travel costs, which were still a concern during the war. So um, I think I agree with uh, there was there's some feeling that there was hope that the Cardinals would survive and continue in Chicago. All right. Well, let's explain to me 1947, because talk about it, it seems to be the ultimate of outliers uh, in the seasons played by the Chicago Cardinals, both before and after this 1947 season. Now, it didn't still result in a championship, but it's uh, arguably perhaps one of the more notable among not many years uh, of uh, it, the fr- this franchise's uh, long life. Yeah, and after the war, of course, all the NFL teams had their draft choices. They had the returning servicemen. They had the graduating college seniors. And so there was a lot of talent floating around the National Football League. And the Cardinals, um, during the war with the card pits, they were winless, of course. And then in uh, 1945, they won one game. And so Jimmy Councilman, who was the coach in the early 40s, he came back uh, after the war for the 1946 season and uh, promptly turned them into a winning team. Not that much more. They were 6-5 and five in the league, but still a winning team. And more importantly, they were drawing crowds. Uh, I think, again, 50,000 or so in New York. They were drawing over 30,000 for a lot of their home games with Green Bay and, of course, the Bears uh, drew about almost 40,000. And so it was the, the start of a winning team. And with all this talent on board, um, there was hopes that the Cardinals would, again, probably challenge the Bears. It seemed like they were still interested in beating the Bears more so than winning the NFL championship. But uh, Mr. Bidwell was, of course, looking to win the NFL. And 47 was marked by uh, a lot of this talent really coming together. They had the dream backfield, which was the first time there were four All-Americans from college in the backfield of a pro team with Paul Christman of Missouri, Pat Harder of Wisconsin, Marshall Goldberg from, uh, from Pittsburgh, um, Charlie Trippi from Georgia, and then Goldberg switched to defense, and uh, Elmer Engsman from Notre Dame came in and, and played offensive halfback. But they had great linemen, uh, some who had played with the Cardinals before the war and were really a strong team. But it's still that season that came down to a final game in 1947 against the Bears when the Cardinals pulled out a trick play to win their division championship uh, and defeat the Bears before almost 50,000 in Chicago. So that was uh, kind of the first time in modern history at that time where the Cardinals were the superior team to the Bears. And uh, in 48, uh, of course, 47, the Cardinals did win the championship when they beat the Eagles at Comiskey Park. Cardinals had a a bit of an advantage by putting uh, gym shoes or tennis shoes on to play in the icy conditions. And the Eagles did... uh, change, uh, but later at halftime, I believe, but the Cardinals won that game. And, and then I think in 48 was, in my opinion, the best Cardinals team ever. They were 11 and one during the league, went to Philadelphia to play for the championship, same two teams. And it was a horrible snowstorm. There's been lots of stuff written about that. 
about how deep the snow was. There was some concern that perhaps the game should have not even been played, but the Eagles won seven to nothing when there was a fumble by the Cardinals deep in their own territory late in the game. And after that, the Cardinals kind of went downhill, but that 47 and 48 season were remarkable in terms of uh, historical significance for the team. Well, in 48 was also the first uh, NFL championship game to ever be televised. I got maybe that was had a little bit of a That's right. yeah, early yeah. early media pressure to play that game. But okay, so despite that sort of a blip I guess in history. So something else very dramatic and, and important happened uh, around that time too and that was the passing uh of uh, Mr. Yeah, Bidwell yeah. and and so what happens to the team and its ownership then and and setting the stage I guess for the 50s which uh, didn't improve things very much, did it? Yeah, when Mr. Bidwell passed away in early 1947 and his wife, Violet, was then basically the owner of the team, uh, she brought in a guy named Walter Wolfner, who was supposed to be making the football decisions, but he wasn't a football man. And some of the surviving players I talked to over the years were kind of angry that he was making decisions that they did not agree with at the time. And I think that kind of led to the team's downfall after the 1948 season. So there was a, a bit of a internal conflict. The Bidwell sons were not quite old enough, although they were involved with the team back then in 47. So um, Mrs. Bidwell was uh, basically the owner at the time with Wolfner kind of calling the shots and representing the team at the league meetings. And, and Wolfner, obviously, well, that's so obviously was a businessman pretty much centered in, in St. Louis, which is important in, in, in a few moments, right? Because I, yeah. I, so describe to me, though, the rivalry, if any, with the Chicago Bears, right? I mean, you're, you're mentioning maybe not, not too uh, unimportantly the idea that the, the Bears maybe were more of a fixation for this team than maybe uh, trying to go for an NFL championship. But uh, I, I, this is also the time when the All-American Football Conference had a team in Chicago against all the odds as well, the Rockets. Right. I mean, you would think yeah. that the Cardinals and their relative uh, uh, secondary status, I guess, relative to the Bears, would be a warning sign for any challenger league to put yet another pro team in town, too. So I, I guess you throw those three teams during the course of the, the late 40s into the mixing bowl. How could the Cardinals even compete, let alone with the Bears, uh, in the NFL, how can they also compete with this challenger, the Chicago Rockets? It doesn't seem like it's a it's a recipe for success. No, there's just so many dollars that could be available for football teams to secure from their fans. And now we have all of these the three teams. And don't forget, we've got Notre Dame not too far away and Northwestern and Illinois. Um all these teams attracting, uh, looking for the attention of the fans. So it was not a recipe for success for at least one of them. The Bears seemed to survive okay. Um, the, the Cardinals and the Rockets had uh, a little bit more difficult time. But uh, I think the fact that the Bears and the Cardinals' history went back so far to 1920 in the oldest rivalry in the NFL, that that probably fans trusted that, that that product was going to be different from what the Rockets were putting on the field. Although from what I've heard, uh, of course, some of the teams that survived that league, it was good football. And uh, we just know that uh, the Cardinals probably were fighting for some of the same, same fans that they were. 
Well, it may, I, I just wonder because it may have even hastened uh, perhaps their demise. Because let's 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 be let's round third base here and, and slide into home. 1950s, right? Just completely. I mean, I, I don't think there's any other way to put it. It was just just frankly woeful for the Chicago Cardinals oh, yeah. franchise. Um, but it's also interesting too because not only were they sort of underperforming on the field, there's still a team in this now strengthening National Football League, and it did attract attention from outsiders who perhaps saw this as one of the weaker links in a strengthening league that perhaps could be uh, purchased and or rehabbed or moved or, or whatever. Maybe you can give our audience a sense of sort of how the Bidwells were, I don't know, looking outward perhaps that perhaps they knew they had something in this franchise, but maybe it wasn't uh, to stay in Chicago and, and, and be, you know, uh, under their, their ownership. Yeah, well, during the 50s, we heard a lot of rumors about places like San Francisco and Dallas and Buffalo uh, with individuals trying to buy the Cardinals. That was that, that was out there in the press that the, that the Cardinals were just, frankly, inevitably deigned to move at some point? Yeah, there were rumors of the Cardinals moving in the early 50s. I've seen in some of the old newspapers where they, of course, would deny it. And Wolfner had a famous pledge that the Cardinals are part of Chicago. They will never leave Chicago. Uh, so that was quite interesting. But the team was struggling. They made the, uh, I don't know, dubious decision to hire Curly Lambeau as coach in 1950, hoping that Curly, after all his success in Green Bay, could duplicate that success on the south side, but it, it didn't happen. And so where the Bears are drawing 30,000 or so fans per game, the Cardinals still had a few games where they're at 11,000 or 9,000 for their home games. And so without revenue from any place else, it was difficult. And television was starting to become available, but not yet a big revenue maker for the league. So I think the Cardinals in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, was probably the worst performing team in the history of the of the NFL over a decade. And so the rumors were out there that the, perhaps the Bidwell family and Wolfner might be interested in moving or selling. The other thing is television became more popular if we had the blackout rule, whereas if one team was playing on the road and the other team was at home, you couldn't watch your favorite team. Uh, that certainly hurt. In fact, when uh, William Bidwell, who passed away recently, when I was doing research for my book, he was uh, uh, pretty secure and, and confident his saying the Cardinals move because of television that uh, with the blackout rules, et cetera, the league had enforced that there wasn't going to be any revenue in, in town for the Cardinals at the time. That, so there were a lot of rumors. San Francisco was one that I saw numerous times that they were thought to be purchased and moved. And a couple of times the um, Wolfner was in agreement to sell the team, but wanted to still maintain at least, part of the ownership or even a majority of the part where to the incoming owners didn't want to invest 49% of the team and not have really a, a vote in the matter. So the team was struggling uh, on the field and off uh, in terms of finances, uh, empty stands, empty seats in the stadiums and 59. Of course, they moved to Soldier Field, which is in bad shape at the time. And in 1959, the team actually played two games in Minneapolis that were home games and drew pretty well. They drew over 20,000 fans. Uh, but again, looking at the writing on the wall, it didn't seem like there would be a future for the Cardinals as much as a lot of us would wish they had held on and, and, and stayed in town until that revenue would kick in from TV. 
Yeah, and Minneapolis is interesting because that was also part of, I think, uh, the original battle plan for the fledgling American Football League. So uh, maybe yeah. you can sort of get it. I mean, we've talked a lot about Lamar Hunt on this show. Uh, by extension, people like Max Winter and, and Bob Houseman and, and, and Bud Adams and 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 the the, the beginnings and the ongoing nineteen uh, sixties of the AFL. But I. In some respects, maybe in many respects, without the Bidwells and uh, and Wolfner kind of demurring, demurring on being acquired uh, in terms other than their own, you could make the argument that the Cardinals were one of the reasons, if not the reasons, for the foundation of the AFL. I firmly believe that. Yeah, the Cardinals were so close to being sold around that time. But again, since the terms could not be agreed upon... Uh, Hunt and his partners went elsewhere to look and, and started the other league, which proved to be successful. So what did the NFL do, though? Uh, the, so this is interesting because it seems like the move then to St. Louis was relatively hasty. And frankly, again, looking back in time, you may know more that without the AFL's arrival and the threat of them looking at markets like Minneapolis and St. Louis, um, that, you know, it just seems like the NFL all of a sudden took the threat seriously and almost rallied yeah. the uh, the league around how do we save the Cardinals and, and make it uh, beneficial for not only the Bidwells, but also for us as a league in the in the face of this threat from this new challenger. And I think you, you hit it right in the head where they did get noticed. In fact, uh, one of the things was that uh, the other league was eyeing St. Louis as a possible location for a team. And so... Uh, Maybe that was the reason they moved rather quickly. It did take everyone by surprise in Chicago. Uh, look back in the newspapers, we didn't see much about them moving to St. Louis at that particular time of year or that quickly. And the fact that the league, with apparently, or rumor has it, that George Ellis paid some of this, gave the Cardinals a half million dollars, a, a lot of money back in March of 1960 to move. But yeah, the, the other league was looking at St. Louis, uh, the television problem in Chicago. So it seemed like the league could save the Cardinals as well as help the league itself continue against this new formed opposition uh, by securing St. Louis and then uh, continuing with the league. And uh, the Cardinals continue to operate, except in a different location. Okay, so we're not going to get into the St. Louis part of the story because so that's for another time, another another uh, situation. That's, that's another incarnation. But one last question on that in, in that sort of move to to St. Louis: How in the world do they wind up holding on to the Cardinals' name, given that the baseball Cardinals had been there for many more years prior? Uh, I, I can't imagine what kind of confusion there was, and I, or or am I just or was it just a natural sort of thing? And I, it sounds, seems. It seems crazy to me that you would move a team that also has the same name as the baseball team in in the city you're moving to. Yeah, it does seem odd. A couple of things I might point out. When Hamlet moved the Staley's to Chicago, I believe he writes in his autobiography, he also wanted to call his team the Cubs out of respect for Mr. Wrigley. But knowing that football players are bigger than uh, baseball players, he decided to name them the Bears. So that's one story. Maybe uh, uh, they thought that the Cardinals' name would be the same in honor of the St. Louis baseball Cardinals. And the other thing might be that the Cardinals themselves with Wolfner and uh, the Bidwell family would say, we want to keep our name. Uh, People won't confuse them. But it was kind of odd. And that's still odd to people when you mention that. 
Yeah, they played, they were the St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, the baseball team? No, 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 it was a football team. So I haven't been able to figure that one out yet. Very interesting. All right. Well, so let's let's put all this in context. And I kind of started out with this question. I'm not going to ask the same question again, but maybe sort of in a different sort of manner, right? So, you know, again, this is this is the longest consecutive lasting franchise, uh, even at arguably before the, the founding of the National Football League. And it's also perhaps maybe, I guess, in longitudinal terms, perhaps the most unlucky, perhaps, or, or underperforming franchises in the league's history. Um, yet, it's, it's essentially important and crucial to uh, the fabric of this league, right? It's been around since its beginning. While it hasn't won a ton of championships or, you know, uh, other sort of, you know, uh, uh, halo of, of success... Um, it is part of a league that is just gargantuan in terms of success these days. And um, I guess you wonder how and when, uh, you know, more uh, recognition of that history, albeit uh, not tremendous, uh, is at least recognized because without, you know, without these early formative years, there would be no Cardinals in this beautiful facility in Arizona. And, uh, you know, and, and in the, 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 the desert Southwest having their own pro franchise. It is, it is kind of amazing when you look back at it now uh, and no team wants to lose. Everybody wants to win, especially now when there's so much pressure on every coach and every team to perform. And you kind of look back and say, well, since the uh, Chicago Cubs won the world series three years ago, the Cardinals, since they won in 47 are the oldest major sports team not to win a world championship, so to speak, in terms of length of year. So the, the Cardinals, unfortunately, have that distinction now. And it, it just seems like, yeah, that that the team hasn't been quite as successful in the number of championships, say, compared to the Bears. But then maybe Bears fans are upset because they've only won one championship in over 50 years. So it's uh, not that off all that far out. But the history that these teams, the Bears and the Cardinals, the Cardinals specifically, is something that really should be embraced. It, it, from you go back to when these players were playing often for no money or for $20 a game and wouldn't come out of the game, uh, even if they had a broken finger or a broken hand and uh, a lot of players got seriously injured, not so much from injuries from getting hit, but maybe because they're playing on horrible fields and they got cut by a dirty piece of glass. And so uh, it's the realistic, uh, the realism, I guess, of what they went through in those years that I really wish would be recognized a, a little better by by the modern teams. And Cardinals certainly deserve any kind of recognition they can get for surviving for now uh, what is it, 120 years since that first game? And uh, they trace it back to Chris and Pat O'Brien back in 1899. And certainly their story deserves being mentioned. I'm also hoping I mention Duke Slater and hopefully for recognition in the Hall of Fame. But I think Chris O'Brien deserves some kind of recognition as well. Uh, he not only was one of the founders of the league, but he also uh, allowed the Bears to come into Chicago because of territorial rights way back when. So it was uh, interesting uh, about all the history that's there and some of us trying to keep it alive, and hopefully that'll be recognized. I, I think it is, little by little, but um, we hope that that will continue to do so as next year we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the NFL, not just the 100th season. All right, here's my last question. So this team winning 
outright a championship in 1947, their last one, and a disputed one in 1925, and that's it, right? Um, yes. So what makes this franchise in its Chicago iteration so interesting to you? Why Why? Why the focus on it? What, what, what got you interested in becoming an expert and or an authority on the Chicago version of, the, of this arguably almost forgotten team? Yeah, my, my interest in the team began kind of oddly. I knew my father was a good football player. And after he passed away, many years after he passed away, I had a box of his stuff. And in there I found that he had a contract from the Chicago Cardinals back in the 40s. And that contract paid him $110 a game, provided he had to bring his own shoes and shoulder pads. He got hurt in training camp and decided he could make more money coaching high school football than he could make uh, playing professional football. And I always found that so ironic. I always wanted to find out more. Well, why did he actually leave? It probably would have been a, he got hurt in training camp. Today would have been a simple arthroscopic surgery, but um, he passed away fairly young. So I was never able to ask him a question. So I wanted to go back and research. And my thought was just at first to find out what happened to him which turned out to be kind of positive because a couple of the players from that area remembered him when I tracked him down. But I found out then there really was no written history of the Cardinals and then uh, decided to write a little bit about the history and was going to do a book that ended in 1947 and had a wonderful publisher, Triumph Books in Chicago, who suggested, well, continue the book up until the Cardinals leave in 1960, which I did. And so uh, we, we completed that book. But uh, it always seems then now as I go through stuff and as we talked about earlier that so much of the Cardinals history is wrong and that's no one's fault. It's just been picked up year after year after year. And if you go to the Cardinals website or even the Hall of Fame's website, they'll have information on how the Cardinals started that was wrong. And a lot of that information came after Chris O'Brien, the original owner, passed away. And the Cardinals themselves started, I'm going to use this word, creating their own history. Not too far off, Chris O'Brien was involved, but he certainly was not the owner of a team back when he was 17 or 18 years old. And so part of this has been uh, my own edification to find out what the history was and uh, to, continue, to continue to research on this team as history has become so important to the National Football League. And, and I think a lot of it goes to Pro Football Hall of Fame now. It has its, its library, which is fantastic. And people are treating the history of the league as a serious subject. So I'm just trying to make my small contribution, which started out trying to find out about my dad. And then it kind of uh, expanded to find out the true history of the Cardinals. And so... Uh, We'll plan on continuing to do that in the future. But, but that's my simple but true story. All right, Cardinals fans in Arizona and, uh, and otherwise, if you grew up watching them in St. Louis, uh, and if uh, you're old enough to remember them in their original incarnation as the Chicago Cardinals, by all means, you uh, owe it to yourself to uh, get a copy of Joe's book. Uh, it is called When Football Was Football, The Chicago Cardinals and the Birth of the NFL. It is published by Triumph, uh, and it is available, of course, uh, for you to purchase uh, many copies of uh, at our website uh, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, of course, wherever good books are sold, but, but if you buy it on our site, we appreciate that for sure. 
uh, you'll get whisked away to a link uh, that will give us a couple of shekels of uh, of goodness for doing so and uh, helps keep uh, our show going. And we appreciate that. Uh, just search up this episode number 140. Gosh almighty, 140 episodes of this silly little program. Can you imagine? Uh, but you just search up that episode on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Uh, click on the link and, and buy a copy or two or 10. They, of course, make great stocking stuffers. And I'm sure Joe will appreciate the holiday uh, love as well uh, by doing so. And of course, while you're there at our website, uh, goodseatstillavailable.com, you can check out all of our other episodes. You got nothing better to do than, you know, uh, after the uh, the turkey has been served this week and uh, you want to abscond into uh into a little privacy, a couple of football games, and maybe you just want to kind of just uh, doze off and maybe listen to some old sports history and culture. By all means, give us uh, give us a listen. We've got 139 other episodes for you to, to listen to and enjoy uh, or introduce your relatives or friends to. By, by all means, go ahead. They're all there for you. And, of course, you can get uh, the show wherever you get podcasts. Uh, and you can also follow us on social media, of course, and that's various places like Twitter. You can follow us, follow us there uh, at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram. You can follow us along there at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, and you can also follow us on Facebook. Just search up uh, Good Seats Still Available. You'll find a little page devoted to us there as well. What else? Uh, you want to send us some email? You can do that uh, either from the website. There's a link there. Or you can send it to us directly if you'd like. And that's hello. Hello at Good Seats Still Available. Dot com. And of course, at the website, too, you can click around and find the link to our email newsletter, which you'll get uh, over the course of each weekend and uh, get a little bit of a head start as to what our episode's going to be for the uh, upcoming week, uh, a little bit in advance of uh, the average uh, Joe or Francine or, or, or Hank or Frank or whoever their names are out there. And we'll be glad to send that to you uh, as well uh, by clicking on the link and doing that. And uh, what else? Oh, we want to say thank you. Uh, and a great Thanksgiving uh, tip of the uh, the turkey hat, uh, if there is such a thing. Yes, there is. I, I've seen them. Uh, you can get them little turkey legs and stuff. Uh, if you're wearing one of those, why don't you take one of those off and, and bow gracefully uh, in the general direction uh, of our friends, uh, Podfly Productions in particular, the good Dr. Jerry Payne, who I'm sure is uh, working on uh, his Thanksgiving feast as we uh, as we speak. He's uh, the... Uh, the chief uh, uh, editor and producer of all this great stuff. And we appreciate his efforts as well as Podfly and, uh, and their efforts. And if you're interested in getting into the podcast game, you have no idea where to begin. Uh, you're interested in getting involved. By all means, check them out at podfly.net. All right. We are done for this week. We wish you the best of all Thanksgivings. Uh, enjoy the football. Don't uh, eat too much turkey or stuffing or cranberries or any of that pecan pie too much of it is not a good thing just uh, dose it out will you in uh, in nice measurable forms so that we can uh, entertain you yet again next week and the weeks thereafter with more great shows from uh, us to you we wish you the best of uh, thanksgiving holiday and uh, we'll see you soon and uh, let's leave you now shall we uh, you heard earlier on uh, that uh, the uh, the chicago cardinals were not necessarily the most uh, i don't know free spending team uh, they couldn't even afford the rights to uh, to create even a theme song. But when they moved to St. Louis in 1960, they stepped right up and uh, indeed got a fight song. It was written by uh, Irving Bebo and Larry Kent. And uh, it's still the song that you'll hear today played in various versions in Arizona. And here it is. The Cardinals are charging right into uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Take care, everybody. <laughs> See you next week.